Welcome to Take a Wonder with Shebs, the show that features some of the biggest travel bloggers, TV and radio personalities and journalists from all around the world. Each show aims to take my guest on a wonder and uncover topics that may not be discussed on their platforms or in the media, whether that's the state of travel blogging and journalism as it is today, or whether there's enough diversity within the industry. Perhaps what impact technology and social media have had on content creation, or in general the impact of current affairs on the industry. I also try and find out the journey behind each individual's success, as this is more important to me than the actual travel. This episode aired on my YouTube channel on the 8th of March 2021, and it's with Ryan Pyle. Ryan, an adventurer, TV host, producer to name a few of his credentials, discussed with me where his initial love for travel and adventure seeking all began. I also discussed with him in detail about his successful career, what it took to get there and his future aspirations. All that and much more in this enthralling talk. Thank you very much for coming on, Ryan. I really appreciate your time. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Just explain to people who you are really and what you do. Yeah, I'm a professional traveler. I, I make TV shows uh, for Discovery Channel, BBC, Earth, Amazon Prime. I travel all around the world, um, you know, exotic destinations. We climb mountains. We walk across deserts for TV shows like Extreme Treks, uh, which um, just recently uh, was nominated for five Asian Academy Awards, which is great. So that was what we were all doing, you know, before uh, 2020, I suppose. And then the last couple little while has been a little bit slower. But uh, hopefully it'll pick up again soon. It sounds amazing. I'll come on to your work in a bit more detail. But I always like to ask my uh, guest questions on how it all began. So I'm going to take you back. So where did the initial love for travel start from? I won't, I'll ask you the question afterwards about the adventure side, but where did the travel come from then? I'm of a certain age where I grew up, uh, you know, before the internet <laughs> and, uh, and there were magazines all around my house, National Geographic. Uh, and, you know, those yellow magazines would show up every month and take me around the world. So my mom was a travel agent. Uh, my father was in the finance industry, but my mom was a travel agent, always had the National Geographics around. And I was always from an early age, just trying to understand what the rest of the world looked like. And then I had a few fantastic, you know, international politics and geography classes where I learned about the rest of the world and how it works. And then I just felt like um, once I was done university, it was time to get out and, and see something. And uh, and I've never gone back. Your mother, as you said, there, she was a travel agent. So I assume you went on quite a lot of trips together. Not so much. So uh, back in the old days when travel agents was, was actually a job, now, every, now everyone just goes online and, uh, and clicks, right? But back in the old days, you had to go into like a travel agency and like book a ticket. And my mom did that. Um, and, uh, and she would go on some trips to, you know, to promote new destinations and things like that. But I never went because I was young um, and I was always at home. So that was never an issue. We did have some nice family holidays, though. But as, as a Canadian, as a young Canadian, we were really into skiing. So that was a, a big thing. Canada has some beautiful um, mountains. So we were always trying to get outside in the winter as much as we could. You were saying that you, you went to university. So your degree is quite an interesting one, international politics. So where did that come about? Because obviously, as you were saying that, you had a bit of an interest, obviously, with your mom being um, a travel agent. So where did that politics side of interest come from for you then? Well, I was always interested in traveling, but I never thought that uh, I could make a living out of it. So 
so when I was young, I, I really liked international politics. I really liked learning about the way other governments worked. I really liked the way learning about the ways different countries structured their economies. Um, so I kind of followed along with international politics. And there were days when I was in high school and university where part of me wanted to go into banking, which is what my father did. And part of me wanted to like work for the United Nations or something like that and, and, and work abroad or work in a developing country and, you know, um, help them, you know, build up a country that's, you know, more in a more sustainable way. So these were always things that I was thinking about, but, but international politics did get me interested in the rest of the world. And, and, and it did get me interested eventually in China uh, where I spent a lot of time. So it was just kind of understanding the way all these different countries work and operate that got me curious. And I just wanted to go and see what was there and how it felt and, you know, talk to the people. And that, and that was kind of what drove those initial um, trips abroad. Mentioned China there, so you moved across to China from from Canada. Was it because of all your studies into China? Is that is that the fascination of moving across? Yeah, I think so. So I was um, from a young age. I, I was a uh, my father was in the Olympics, so my father was an Olympian um, in nineteen seventy two. So sports has always been a big thing in my family. Um, my father was a, a water polo player, and I wasn't. Uh, I didn't really take to that. So what I ended up doing, I played basketball, uh, but with uh, a similar passion and excitement. And I ended up playing basketball for the University of Toronto, which was a, a great uh, privilege. And uh, some of the greatest you know, memories of my life are from those days. But, but, um, and, but like so many people, when I graduated from, from playing basketball and, and going to school at the University of Toronto, I wasn't good enough to play professional. So now, you know, since the age of eight to the age of 22, you're doing one thing for four hours a day and now it's gone and uh and i really suffered because uh because you know when you're when you're young and you're playing high level sports you don't grow up as a very well-rounded person you know you you eat you sleep uh you study a little bit but you play a lot of sports and you don't have a lot of time for hobbies or learning about the rest of the world or things like this so when my basketball career was over i had a huge hole in my life um that i had to fill and i didn't know what to fill it with and and I decided that I was going to fill it with China. Now, why China? In my second year of university, I was playing basketball. And with the basketball team, we would always travel Friday, Saturday, Sunday and play our games. Um, so having Friday off was always really helpful. And in order to have my Friday off, I had to take any class at like on Thursday at 2 p.m., which was like the only other empty slot in my schedule. And the only class on Thursday at 2 p.m. was Introduction to Modern China. And I took it, and it set me on a course that led me to living in China for 17 years. And I literally had no interest in China until I took that class. Right, okay. So that's where it all comes from. And <laughs> so it's just literally that slot the you had. The basketball. <laughs> from the basketball, yeah. And you obviously you were talking about the basketball. And I understand sometimes when you go through a period of time where you're just constantly doing, you're drilled to do one thing, you know, play basketball or whatever other sports people might play. And you you want that as, as a passion. And by the way, obviously basketball players do get to go around a bit travel a bit and stuff but and then when all of a sudden i guess the question is when you realize that the dream that you had is not going to be a reality does as on a mental level how does what does it take for you to sort of come back and do something else i think uh, the power to reinvent is important and i've actually had to do this many times in my life uh you know i think uh 
being involved in basketball from a young age and then not being able to pursue it professionally uh, was, you know, the first reinvention because my entire identity was tied up in playing sports. And then now all of a sudden I'm 22 and I'm just no one and not like the guy from the team. Right. So uh, you go through some depression, you, you know, you go through some self growth and you have to try to figure out what your next step is. And, and I just decided that I didn't want to hang around in China and be like, or sorry, didn't want to hang around in Toronto and just be like some guy that used to play, you know, really good basketball. I wanted to just get out and I decided I wanted to see the world. So I moved to China. So first I went on a, on a 90 day trip all around China just to like check it out because I had taken that first class in my second year. And then I had taken another class uh, in my third year. And then I'd taken another class in my fourth year. And I was like, okay, this country is different. This country has a very unique history, especially a very unique modern history since 1949. Um, and it's going through all this economic change. And I, you know, this was around 2000, 2001. Uh, when it was really starting to take off and people were coming out of poverty and uh, the country was growing incredibly fast. And um, and I just thought I should go see a different part of the world. And then if I don't like it, I can always come back to Toronto and pursue something to do with my interna interna international politics degree, which is maybe not much, or, or maybe going into finance or something like that, which is what my dad did. So I gave myself those 90 days to go out and explore China. and. And I realized that um, I loved it. I loved traveling. I loved not speaking the local language. I loved how humble I had become. I think it was like it was like the best version of myself I ever was. If I can explain that, like just traveling made me a better person. I think traveling made me want to learn more about people. It made me forget about myself, putting myself in the footsteps of others. And that was really something I liked. And then I was like, I have to figure out how to make a living out of this because I'm happy and I love it. And I think a lot of people who travel feel the same way. Like they love to travel. They love to be away from home. They love to explore. They love to see new something new every day. It's addictive. Make no mistake. You know, travel is addictive. Um, and I got addicted. So when I, after my initial 90 day trip in China, I came back to Toronto and I told my family, like, I'm done with Canada. Uh, I'm moving to, to China. And then that was it. That was, um, yeah, that was in 2001. So when you told your parents that, and you were saying this, I want to make a career. I told them. I told them at Christmas. I went, <laughs> I went home Christmas for present, Christmas. Eh? I went home for Christmas. And I told my family I was done with Canada. When you said to your parents you're going to try and make this, did you tell them right? Okay, I want to be a TV host. I want to be a producer. What did you exactly tell them? I thought at the initial stage that I could write and do photography. So while I was traveling around in China in that first trip that I took, I was writing, I had a journal, uh, I was writing home like these like really long notes every week to my family and my friends telling them what I was seeing. And I was like reporting about what I was doing in China. You're probably one of the first guys to do blogs then in summer because blogs sort of became known in like sort of the early to mid 2000s, early 2000s. You're probably one of the first guys to do blogs then. I might have been, but my blog wasn't very popular. I never, I didn't, I wasn't very good at it. But what I, what I did do was I, I went in a, maybe a more traditional way. I didn't embrace the internet uh, for all that it was at that, at that stage. So actually I went and um, I started working for magazines. So, you know, in back in the old days, there were three tiers of, uh, of magazines. So first, you know, I, I worked for the local newspapers and magazines in China, and there are English language newspapers and magazines in China. Um, 
for the expats that live there, for the non-Chinese people that live there, and they're very popular. One of them is called That Shanghai. Another one was called like City Weekend. Um, so I would do like travel features for them, and I would go out and write and do photography, and I would go to some remote part of China in the mountains and stay with some local villagers, and they would pay me a little bit of money, and I would, you know, write a thousand words or two thousand words and, and come back with some imagery. And so I was doing that for a little while. And then I graduated to the second level, which was the regional newspapers and magazines, which was like South China Morning Post in Hong Kong or the Straits Times in Singapore. Uh, and then also around that is like airline magazines, like when you sit down on United Airlines or British Airways or Cathay Pacific or Singapore Airways or Qantas, they all have magazines with travel destinations. So then I started shooting and writing for all of those. And then... Uh, soon after that, I got in with like the New York Times and that changed my career entirely because then I started be being like a real journalist uh, and, and having to really, um, you know, learn journalism. And I was lucky because my writing partner at that time was Howard W. French. He was the Shanghai correspondent for the New York Times. And uh, he took me under his wing and taught me how to how to do that job. And um, it was amazing. So when people ask me, you know. You were a journalist for so many years. Like, did you go to journalism school? I was like, no, but I hung out for four years with Howard W. French, and he taught me everything I needed to know. So that was amazing. And then I, I freelanced for the New York Times, and then I also worked for the Sunday Times Magazine, Der Spiegel, Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, Forbes, Fortune, and then I, I did that for about eight years um, at a at a at a pretty high level. I won some awards, uh, mainly for the photography, less for the writing. Um, but I would still do some travel features writing wise. Um, but the hard journalism stuff was, that was all done by, by, uh, the staff journalists, uh, which was, which was great. And I got to see China in a totally different way then. And it was, um, yeah, it was a magical time in my life, but, uh, but eventually it ended, uh, it ended for two reasons. One was, um, I was just getting really sad of, of being in part of this like journalism machine that was just so negative all the time. Uh, and I just felt like all the stories that we were working on all the time, all the time, all the time were just negative. And, uh, I liked China. I lived there for 17 years. Every country has a lot of problems. Every country has a lot of great things going on. China is no different. The United States is no different. The UK is no different. You know, every country has its issues. Um, but, but I just felt like everything we were working on was just negative and it was dragging me down. So, so in 2008, we had the financial crisis. We had the mortgage uh, backed security crisis. And, um, and that obviously had a devastating effect across the global economy. But as one of the very, very small side caveats to that uh, financial crisis is that the print publishing industry was destroyed. So Time Magazine, Newsweek, Forbes, Fortune, New York Times, um, they all had been postponing their shift to being digital um, and they got crushed. So I, I pretty much lost all of my work in, uh, 20, in 2009 and 2010. So it was then that I decided, like, if I want to keep traveling around the world and meeting people and telling stories, I'm going to have to move into to video, into television. And this was at around the same time YouTube was also becoming popular. But again, I didn't embrace, I did not embrace the internet at that stage. I, I wanted to work with BBC and Discovery Channel and National Geographic and the more storied brands. And I wanted to be associated at that level with them. And, um, and then I worked towards doing that. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I've been working with people like that for 10 years now. There's so much to uncover from what, what you said. All. <laughs> so firstly, the journalism side of things. So I've had quite a few guests, uh, who had like big publications for, 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 for the biggest magazines, biggest newspapers. And a lot of them have also said to me that they didn't actually necessarily go to journalism school. And it was something 
because of the passion in travel, they just fell into it. It was a way of getting. But as you said, that you had a mentor in a way where guided you and you know you did it for eight years now the other thing you said as well you were crunching out articles or 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 publications where you felt as though it was quite negative i mean i can't there are lots of as you said there's there's so many flaws in every country um but I, for myself, I always, when I go travel, traveling, try and show people the good sides of, of a country, you know, the people. People make, make the country, I think. So I've been to China a couple of times, you know. I loved it. You know, there was fabulous, you know, the street food, everything about it was amazing. But I guess if you're constantly writing something negative, you're right, it can drag you down. Now, the other thing, when you said the 2008, sort of came around and it in some respects that was a blessing in disguise because if that didn't happen you know you probably could have been still potentially um still writing and that the television career may not have potentially started but the other thing i was going to say to you as well you mentioned you always wanted to do discovery channel sort of or national geographics growing up myself you know i watched the likes of david attenborough uh, over the years recently uh, one of my favorites is uh, leverson wood so when you watch people like that on telly that's who i'd want to sort of emulate when i travel now the the generation coming up now may want to do more of the because you see instagram nowadays it's all sort of taking selfies and stuff so the way we travel has potentially changed so i can understand why you wanted to go down the discovery channel route i always want to be associated with high quality everything. And I was very proud for many years to work for the New York Times. And I think they're one of the gold standards in, in, in journalism. And, and, um, and I'm very proud that I've worked with BBC and, and Discovery Channel, because I think they're, um, they're, they're, you know, the gold standards of what they do as well, even though I do have a caveat to this, like, I don't always like a lot of the programs they make these days. Um, but when I was growing up, you know, that was, um, that brand meant the world to me and now it's just a lot of like competition shows and reality shows and sensationalized things and i don't like that and i don't make those kinds of shows but those brands still do stand very strong for me and for how i grew up in terms of your shows then you've got i mean t- uh, tough ride is one of them extreme treks and you've also won um the guinness world record for the longest motorcycle ride so explain to me what made you ride for, for so long uh, and then obviously you mentioned the shows you wanted to be you know you take it as a, as a proper adventure so the other question i didn't ask you uh, was where did the adventure side of you come from then i'll talk both those questions so when i was when i was working as a journalist in china um working for the new york times and such i was living in shanghai and Shanghai, for those of you who might not know, is a big city with like 30 million people in it. And um, it's a tough place to live every day. There's no green space. Uh, it has a great energy to it, and it's a wonderful city. But I needed to get out and like into the nature and into the countryside. And I don't know where that need came from. I guess it's just you know inbred in me from a young age when I was out skiing or or you know doing things in the mountains with my parents. But I really loved just being out in, in nature and being in Shanghai is the opposite of being in nature. So whenever we had holidays or downtime, uh, I would go out trekking and climbing in parts of Tibet or parts of remote Sichuan province out in Western China. And I loved it. And, and then when the, when the financial crisis hit and I had to pivot, um, 
that was kind of where I wanted to take my next part of my career because I really enjoyed doing that. And, um, and I thought that it was very visual and, and there are stories out there because I'd learned from Howard French, you know, how to find stories everywhere and, and how to tell them and convey them. And it's still something I, I, I use today. So um, why the motorcycle trip? The motorcycle trip was very much a reaction to the journalism career. So I had traveled all around China. I had done all these travel stories. I had um, taken all these vacations in the remote mountains. And, and I really thought China had much more to offer than what the mainstream media was reporting on day in and day out. So I decided that my first television series was going to be me riding a motorcycle all the way around China, showing people my China, uh, which is not the same China you see in the mainstream journalism. But uh, and again, part of the China that I helped create through my work as well, because we were we were only looking at at one side of, of China in many in many cases, uh, even though a lot of the journalism journalism was award winning. Um, but I really wanted to do something light and fun and to inspire people to get off the couch and see more of the world. And then when I started my television career, I made a, a clean break from journalism. Um, I wanted to be happy. I wanted the people who watched my show to be happy. Uh, and I wanted to meet nice people in beautiful places. And the, my, the way, I, the way I, I can kind of accept that in my brain is I did hard journalism for eight years. I'm done with it. And for the television audience, after you've had a terrible day at work for 10, 12, 14 hours, and you want to come home at 10 p.m. and have a, have a nice beer and relax, I want you to turn on my show and be taken into a beautiful dream world. Uh, and I don't want to talk about you know, current events. I don't want to talk about politics. I don't want to talk about economics. I don't want to talk about anything. I just want to take you into this beautiful dream world that is amazing and wonderful and visually stunning with with crazy wonderful people and then and so that's how I've lived for the last ten years and I've never been happier. Um, 2020 was a little bit different, but from 2010 to 2019, we were rolling really really nicely. For those that don't know, how long was that motorcycle ride? Well, that was 65 days, and it was like 18 and a half thousand kilometers. And we made a six-part television series for Discover or for Travel Channel uh, called Tough Rides China, and uh, we set a Guinness World Record for the longest motorcycle trip in one country without backtracking or overlapping. Unreal! It's incredible, and for you to do that and have the mentality to just keep going, it shows you that that level of a commitment and. To, to finish that journey. Can I, just, I didn't quite actually ask you, how did the television, how did you get into television then? Was it purely because of, you know, people seeing your work through journalism? Is that how it started? It was terrible. My transition from, you know, to, uh, news media into television was awful. So it was a very difficult, you know, two to three years. Um, so what I did is I, I made a very nice proposal telling people that I used to work for the New York Times and uh, Time Magazine, award-winning photographer, blah, blah, blah. And I said, uh, you know, I'm going to start making television now. No one cared. And then I was like, uh, now I'm going to make ride a motorcycle around China. And I brought my brother with me because I thought that we would have a good relationship when we did the trip. And then I also thought, like, um, it would be nice to have this back and forth. And he'd never been to China, and I was kind of a China expert. So we would have this nice dichotomy of, of, of views and, and opinions. Um, and, and so we made this proposal, and we went to all the big discover All the people I work with now said no to me then. 
uh, and even some of the same producers. Um, so they, so it's been a very funny journey. Uh, but no, yeah, everyone said no to us. We asked for corporate sponsorship. Everyone said no to us. Um, so my brother and I just decided to fund it ourselves. So we funded the trip ourselves. Um, and, uh, and then it ended up being a success. Uh, we got it onto Travel Channel. Very thankful for them. And that really started my television career. So after Tough Rides China, we did Tough Rides India and then Tough Rides Brazil. Um, and then we did, uh, then I decided I was, I didn't want to just do motorcycle trips. Like I, I wanted to get back to my hiking days in remote China and Tibet because I really loved those experiences. So then we started the Extreme, Extreme Trek series. Um, and we've now done more than like 20 episodes of Extreme Treks and won a bunch of awards for that. And then last year I did a Expedition Asia series, which is kind of a lighter expedition series all around just Asia, uh, whereas Extreme Treks is five continents and global every year. So, yeah, it's been a it's been an interest, interesting transition. That's for sure. Perseverance is, you know, admirable. Uh, for those listening, I mean, nowadays it's maybe slightly more easier. You know, you've you've got the likes of YouTube or any other platform that you can put your work out. I, I started the podcast, and then, you know, I started doing. So these days, you don't necessarily have to have um, a network or someone to pick you up. You know, you can't give up. Um, there's a lot of people that might think, oh, you know what, I've not gotten the job. You know, the, the, my my career in this is completely over. But no, you you just said there, those producers said no to you originally, then you're working with them now. So it shows you that perseverance and obviously consistency as well within your work uh, will get you somewhere. The sporting career uh, has been very helpful. So playing sports as a young child, learning how to never give up, learning how to work with teammates, learning how to uh, listen to people tell you you can't do something and then working hard and then doing it. Um, I tell you, these lessons are some of the ones I learned when I was 10, 12, 14 years old. Um, you know, I, there was nothing better than having my coach tell me I couldn't do something and then turning around and doing it. Um, and I bring the same mentality to everything I do now. Like whether it's, you know, when I ask Discovery Channel, I tell them I'm going to go here and do this. And they're like, no, you can't do that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it'll be okay. Like we're, we're grownups. We can do this now. Or, 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 you know, another partner. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to kind of, um, break down people's stereotypes of what is possible and, and really kind of, in some ways, um, just challenge people's ideas of, of, of television making, which is, which is what we're definitely trying to do. Because for anyone out there who's watched Extreme Treks or Expedition Asia or whatnot, it, it definitely is a different kind of television show. Um, you know, if you watch it in, in the UK, it's on Amazon Prime. In the US, it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, in Asia, it's on BBC Earth. But um, it's definitely a slower story, um, but hopefully it connects you to the place and the people in a much more meaningful way. And that's definitely the kind of storytelling we're, we're leaning towards. You mentioned that as well. Um, where you might sometimes need someone to tell you no, because it will get your your fire, well, the, be- the, the fire in your belly going to, to, to prove them wrong. I think sometimes you need that. Let's just say if someone kept telling you, this is amazing, this is fantastic. You can sometimes become uh, complacent. So you, trying to prove someone wrong can only make you better, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I everything I've 
everything I've succeeded at in my life, I succeeded at it through anger initially, I suppose. Um, you know, people is like, don't get angry. I'm like, no, no, this is like, this is what gets me to the next level. Like I, I, I don't say like I have to hate someone to want to do something nice or, you know, to push the envelope or do something new or creative, but I have to have some slight resentment. Um, you know, that's, that's what keeps me fired up and burning. And that's what gets me up every day. Um, you know, there's, there's a combination of like having that feeling of wanting to prove someone wrong. And then also having that feeling of just never listening to anyone or anything. And I think that that's, it's, it's some balance between those moods where, you know, doing an extreme Trek season four this year, you know, people told us not to start filming or, you know, or they told us, you know, don't go to these places. And we went and had amazing episodes and, and, um, or, you know, extreme treks was another series that no one wanted. So I had done three seasons of the tough rides motorcycle show and everyone assumed that I would just keep making motorcycle shows. And then I told them that I was going to do this mountain trekking show, you know, in the first few were going to be in Tibet and it was going to be in like the most remote, wildest place you've ever been. And they were just, no, you're not gonna be able to do that. And I was like, but I just did something you thought I couldn't do. Let's just buy into this and make this a little easier for me. And of course they didn't. And then I had to self-fund that. Um, even after like, a, you know, like even after being in television for three, four years, um, there still was, you know, this idea that things couldn't be done. And, and, and then you had to show them that it could be done. And, and that's kind of how you buy your freedom. And also you open the door for other explorers when you say, oh, look, Ryan Powell's done it. So why can't I do it? So it, it leads to to more better television as you said you know you don't you want those slow build-ups and i like i love those uh, shows where you, you kind of not too sure where the journey is going to go sometimes when it's a really short show or oh, i don't know it is going to be over within an hour but yeah well, when you see that and you think wow I, I saw the journey from episode one to episode six and it's uh, you can see it's uh, unreal so uh, Opening the doors for others is, is always a good thing, and you've all, you mentioned as well you've won many awards for it as well. And what I've noticed is 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 based in Asia is also the the Asian Academy Awards. I assume that's like the equivalent of Emmy or the BAFTAs here in the UK. It is, yeah, and 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 um, because our productions weren't commissioned by Amazon Prime um, as like a as like a um, as a as like a feature, um, you know, we we went with the Asian Academy Awards in, uh, in Singapore, which was great. And we, you know, we, we had a great run with best director, best cinematography, best nonfiction entertainment, uh, best director. I direct the show and produce it as well. And also best lifestyle host. So, um, yeah, the series is very much my baby and, um, and I love being able to do it and which makes just sitting around these last few months, even that much harder. There must've been some, tough times filming uh what would you is there anything that sticks out that think oh my god that was that was that was tough the tough times we have in nature are so much easier than the tough times we have dealing with television broadcast executives so i would take being stuck out in a tent in a snowstorm at like five thousand meters above sea level more than being in a boardroom with television executives arguing about why we chose to film in papua new guinea or something like this um the papua new guinea episode was amazing uh so, you know, the tough times up in the mountains or on the adventure trips, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's the basketball. It's the, you know, you just got to fight through and, 
risk assessment, I think, is something that I've learned a lot over the last 10 years. It's like, because obviously, if you just power through bullheaded, you can make mistakes and put a lot of people in danger. So there is a desire for me to always want to keep moving and always want to, you know, finish and succeed my trip and, and succeed in the journey. But um, obviously, when you're out in Mother Nature, Mother Nature always wins. Uh, and she doesn't care what she wrecks in her path. So um, risk assessment and just kind of understanding uh, our own physical boundaries uh, is has has been something that I've really had to learn. So that's been very powerful, and we've had to use it many times. What do you look for when you do these? So there's got to be something that you want to get out of it, either meeting people, the locals. What is it that you that you want to get out of these trips? We'll take extreme treks, for example. So that's an adventure trekking show. So the first thing we want to do is we have a we want to have a very clean starting point and finishing point, um, and we want to be able to cover that distance on foot. So it can't be like a thousand kilometers, right? It's got to be hundred, hundred and fifty, something like this. That's that's the first thing. Number two, like we want to do a, a walking trip or an adventure trip that that's exciting and and fun and has some purpose. Now climbing a mountain is actually pretty easy because the purpose is just to go from the bottom to the top. But if you go in Papua New Guinea, like where we did, we did a 100-kilometer trek through the Kokoda Trail. And the Kokoda Trail was a battleground between the Japanese and the Australians in World War II. So that's the story. So along the trail, we're, we're learning about the history of the war through a historian who was traveling with us. And then we also had all these porters and their families were part of the war, for, you know, helping the Australians defend the island from the Japanese. So, you know, here we are doing this physically grueling trek, 100 kilometers more than 8,000 meters of altitude variation, raining five times a day, muddy, snakes. But then we also had this beautiful history around us. Um, and it was so powerful and so meaningful to do that trip with local Papua New Guineans. Even though they were our porters, they were, you know, they were amazing and wonderful travel companions. And they were also really happy to have work because we had hired like 20 of them to carry all of our camera equipment through the, through the mountains, the, 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 Oh, it, was, it was beautiful. Like the, it's just a rainforest. It's the most mountainous rainforest in the world. And so, yeah, so we always try to match up these dramatic stories where Papua New Guinea, maybe we have history and then Aconcagua, it's the highest mountain in South America. It's 7,000 meters above sea level. You know, the story of just climbing Aconcagua is compelling enough. And, and then, of course, we work with the guides and we also interview like local medical people at base camp to see how people are climatizing. And, you know, people were dying every day on the mountain, which was kind of terrifying. So, you know, you find the story elements and, and then you also have this kind of intense natural experience. And then you also have to have a good guide, a local guide who can tell you about his or her country. Um, because I don't want to walk around like some Caucasian expert, you know, here for the first time. And I'm going to tell everyone what this place is like. No, like I'm humble. Um, it's a privilege to be here. So I don't know anything about your country. So, you know, walk me through it. And then all I can do is, is relate to the audience how I feel uh, every step of the way, which is always wonderful. Uh, I want to move on to some of your other work because there's so much to cover, but I don't think we'll cover it, as I said to you. Um, so you, you've done the TV stuff, but you've also, you also do talks as well. So you've done uh, TEDx talks and other pub, um, public speaking. What's that like when you go and tell people your story? Oh, I love it. Um, I absolutely love it. And actually, I started doing lectures and speaking engagements when I was a photographer for the New York Times. And uh, this was the best thing I could have ever done because it taught me how to be calm and relaxed in front of an audience. And this helped me be a television presenter more than anything else in the world. Like when I, when my, when my photography career was finished, I, I knew I wanted to make television and I was confident that I could carry 
a show because I knew that if you put me up in front of an audience of 500 people, I could talk about why I love photography and I could talk about the stories within all the images for an hour and captivate people. So I knew that if I could just go out to a beautiful place and meet people with a camera, I could connect with the audience in a semi-meaningful way, which hopefully they won't turn off the channel, change the channel or turn off the television entirely. So that gave me the confidence to make TV. So I still love doing the talks. Um, in 2019, I think I did 50 talks all around the world, uh, the US, Europe, Asia, uh, both a mix of corporate talks, Fortune 500 companies inviting me to talk to their senior managers about risk taking and traveling in remote places, working outside your comfort zone, um, you know, working as part of a team in an, in an intense environment. You know, these are all things that, you know, we do. Uh, secondhand and, and it, we barely have to think about it but these are things that people who work in offices and boardrooms and things they might not think about it in the same way we do so our experiences can be very valuable i also give a lot of talks for free uh, i do talks in hong kong at the you know royal geographical society or the asia society out there which are always really well received um, i try to do a talk every year at the london school of economics uh, which is one of the best public lecture platforms, you know, and uh, I, I didn't get to do it in 2020. Um, but hopefully I can go back this year at some stage and do another talk because that's always one of my favorite venues. Again, another free venue. But we had like 750 people show up in 2018 or 2019 when I did my last talk. And the audience was wonderful and we were laughing and the questions were great. So I really enjoy just all forms of speaking um, because I feel like it's a performance and it's 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 all part of entertainment and uh, and again I get to talk about my work which I'm passionate about and then I get I love the questions the Q and A is the best because that just tells me uh, it helps me reinforce my vision. You've also written books as well, publications. Um, so what what got you started in, in writing a, a book? Well, I, I loved I loved working on the books because I. I wanted people to kind of have like a behind the scenes of the television show. So I did a, so I did like the Tough Rides China book, the Tough Rides India book, the Tough Rides Brazil book to give people like a behind the scenes of what happened while we were filming the show. And, you know, they're all on Amazon and, you know, people buy them still. But it was always nice because in the early days when I would do the talks, I would bring, you know, 50 books and people would buy them or I'd give them away for free and I'd sign them and then people could leave with something. But now no one really cares about books uh, at all. But uh, the, the idea was was um, was to let people kind of go home with something uh, after they've met me, and then also to tell some kind of like behind the scenes of what it was like making that show. Which one would you recommend as a first to sort of say, right, this is this is Ryan Powell's uh, book to read first if you're going to read about Ryan Powell? I think um, so. I made a book. I wrote a book called Sacred Mountains. Uh, and that was about my Extreme Trek season one series, which was a pilot. We only did four episodes, but all four of them were in remote Tibet. And we called the book and the TV show Sacred Mountains because uh, all four of the mountains, uh, one mountain each episode, was a sacred holy mountain for the local Tibetan people. And what we did is we did the trek around that mountain with the locals who were, doing, who were making their pilgrimage. Um, and we filmed it. And it was beautiful. Uh, and it was spiritual and it, and it was lovely and the, the you know the nature was out of this world and the people we met along the way were were just amazing and uh and that book maybe more than anything else is the closest to my heart uh, and and it's definitely something that um you know people should read if they have the chance 
during uh, 2020, I noticed you started uh, Instagram Live and then now you started your podcast as well. Was that mainly to do with the fact that you were stuck inside and uh, a bit like myself, I started this during 2020 as well. Uh, and uh, what's it like now going live, I guess, to, to the world and doing your podcasts? So 2020 has been a, a tough one. Uh, in in December and January, I was looking for uh, December 2019 and January 2020. I was very much looking to having a very exciting and fun year uh, going back into my television work. And uh, in January, I was in Moscow and St. Petersburg uh, on vacation. And then I was in Saudi Arabia doing some work. Uh, and I rented a car and drove all around Saudi Arabia just to explore it because Saudi Arabia was opening and it's one of these countries that very few people have explored. So I wanted to meet the local people and, 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 and kind of get a feel if I could film there someday. So it was kind of like a, a little bit of a recce. Uh, and then in February, we went to Myanmar and started filming Extreme Trek season four. Uh, and that was okay. And then in March, I went to Ethiopia and, uh, I'll, I'll just tell this one story and then I'll get back to the Instagram lives in the podcast. So I was in Ethiopia and we were filming extreme treks in the Simeon mountains on the border with South Sudan. And, uh, and a few people had mentioned to us, we probably shouldn't go to Ethiopia in the middle of March because of things that were happening around the world. And I was like, you know what? All I want to do is get to Ethiopia and go trekking in the mountains for two weeks and live in a tent and social distance and, you know, and just not be in a, in a city and not be around other people. Like this is exactly what I need, right? This is like my thinking at the time. And we'll film an episode as well. It'll be therapeutic. It'll help my mental health because I was just sitting around watching the news every day and it wasn't good. So, um, so then I went to Ethiopia and then uh, we were up in the Simeon Mountains. We were like three days into our trek. Uh, the day before that, I didn't have a mobile signal. And then I got up to the top of a mountain, about 4,000 meters above sea level. And our guide said, you guys can check your phones. we got signal here. And then my phone just went off. It was like U.S. is closed. Europe is closed. United Arab Emirates is closed. And I live in Dubai. And I couldn't go back to Dubai. So there we were, 10 a.m., March 19th. And um, the world had kind of closed. And we were on the top of a mountain in Ethiopia. So we took a, we took a minute and just kind of recalibrated ourselves and decided what we should do. Um, so we ended up making a call cause we had a signal, uh, to a driver and then we hiked six hours to the nearest road. Uh, and then we drove all night back to Addis Ababa and we managed to get out of Addis Ababa, um, like a day before they closed the airport. So that was good. Um, as much as I love Ethiopia and I miss my friends there, I didn't want to be stuck in Ethiopia. Uh, I wasn't able to come back home to Dubai, but I had quite a lot of work in the Middle East, so I wanted to stay somewhat in the same time zone. So I ended up going to Istanbul, and I got into Istanbul same day they closed their international borders, um, which was which was yeah a little bit terrifying. Some of my camera crew they went back to their home country, so one went to Canada um, uh, because we just didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and then uh, and then I was in Istanbul for four months during during the lockdown, and and I started the Instagram lives and the podcasts because. I'm a storyteller and I didn't have anything to do and I wanted to make my own TV show. So uh, I made my own Instagram live show while during that lockdown time and I made a hundred episodes uh, and every episode I talked to one person for an hour and that was my format that I chose and we just had a casual chat and um, yeah, and I did a hundred episodes uh, while I was in Istanbul and it's a, 
a nice collection of memories and uh, difficulties and, and tough times. But uh, and I'm very thankful to everyone I interviewed along the way because we got to share that experience. And uh, and then I also started the podcast. And the podcast is kind of fun because I have a pretty unique format. Um, one podcast, I, I interview someone. Uh, who I find interesting or inspiring. And the next podcast, I just talk to the audience by myself because there's a lot of things I've got inside um, that need to come out. And I think it's more therapy for me maybe, and I hope people appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I just love riffing, you know, for, I have an idea of what I want to talk about, but it's a lot of just riffing for an hour um, in between the other podcasts where I have interesting guests and stuff like that. So those are definitely two things that have been born out of 2020, out of necessity. Um, I probably would have never done them if I had been traveling, living my normal life. So in that sense, maybe that's a positive. But um, but I, I would I would rather be out on a mountain um, filming with my amazing camera team than than podcasting in my office in Dubai. So it's you know I, I'm trying to make the best of a difficult situation. You said you were stuck in Istanbul and not being able to go back home. Uh, again, on, on a we talk about because I've spoken to guest um, TV hosts and bloggers. You know, on a mental level, um, they found it difficult. So, what was it like for you being in Istanbul away from your home for for so long? For me, it was probably a little bit easier because I don't have a home. So, you know, for the last few years, I've been traveling 250 to 300 days a year, filming all around the world. And even though I lived in Dubai, I never had a physical address. Um, I have an office, which is kind of like my my pseudo home. Um, but then I would always just stay in a hotel next to my office, and it had a kitchen and a, it was like a service department um, because I was always in for two, three days and then gone again. I was doing a speaking engagement. I was doing an episode of like I, I was. We were very busy, and I was very happy. Um, and that that existence was constructed exactly for that purpose to make me happy. So that wasn't like a burden. Like I loved it. I loved being on the move. I loved meeting new people. Um, and to be locked down in Istanbul for four months was difficult, not because I was in a foreign country, because I'm always in foreign countries and I feel fine everywhere. Like that's part of my modus operandi. Like I'm just a happy person anywhere, but just being stuck for four months in Istanbul, whether it could have been Dubai, it could have been Toronto, Canada, it could have been London. Just being, uh, having my wings clipped, I suppose, uh, was, you know, was one of the most challenging scenes. And of course, you know, people have gone through financial ruin. People have lost their livelihoods. People have lost loved ones. And I didn't get to travel for a few months. So it's not the end of the world. And I understand there's a bigger picture, but, um, but for someone to go from where I was in 2019 to kind of being stuck in 2020 uh, for four months, it definitely was psychologically challenging. I was depressed. Um, you know, I was definitely drinking more than normal. You know, it, it just got to a point where there was nothing to do. Like you'd wake up in the morning and there's nothing to film because your camera guys aren't there. You can't go outside. Um, so I would just talk to people on, on Instagram and, uh, and it ended up kind of just getting me through the day. That's the thing with myself. So I, I was always on the move, you know, every other week and, you know, constantly, you know, weekends or hiking, whatever. I was always doing stuff. And then when someone tells you, you can't and you're stuck, how much TV can you watch? And, you know, you just can't. So I started the Instagram, a bit like yourself, I started the Instagram lives. I think I did like four a week and then I found it. Like, actually, this is becoming quite a good success. So, and then I moved it onto the YouTube. So I started doing the podcast and, you know, sort of morphed and managed to get, you know, interest from people to come on. And it was a great way of not necessarily 
traveling but you know listening to the travel travel stories uh just reminding you oh, actually this is what we had and then going forward you know you probably uh well uh, for me it was for not not able to get away um was part of my it is it, it, it's in me uh, to meet people all the time, you know, make new connections, and not to do that for a long period of time was, was tough, I have to say. So I can totally understand when you say, you know, if you, if you start drinking a bit more than you usually do on a mental, yeah, seriously, on a mental level, yeah. you, we could all lose it at times, and you know, it's 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 not it's not easy. It's not been an easy time for people, so I totally get that. It was definitely, uh, it was definitely interesting. It was definitely difficult. Um, but also too, it was a wonderful time. Like when I look back at it now, um, I kind of, I kind of reminisce about, you know, good old Istanbul because I feel like where we are now is even more difficult because now we're in, we're in, we're going to be entering like our second year of this soon. And, uh, and it just doesn't seem like it's being uh, getting any better. So, um, it doesn't really make me feel too optimistic about getting back to work in 2021. So in some cases, it's a little bit rougher now than it, than it was back then. But I'll tell you how I got through my time in Istanbul. So I was sitting outside one night, sitting outside one night, having a drink. And, uh, for the first few weeks I was in Istanbul, I was staying at a hotel because I, I was really optimistic. I was like, okay, I'm going to be back on the road. This is just a two week, you know, lockdown, um, which is what people were saying. And of course it was wrong. So, um, so I was sitting out having a drink one night and I, I could hear this kitten crying. So I'm up on the sixth floor uh, and down in the bushes somewhere below, I could hear this kitten crying. And it wasn't like a meow, meow, like a cute meow, meow. It was like a, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. Like it was like a death cry. So I was like, I got to do something about this. So I went down and I found the cat and it had been left in like a box. No mother, no brothers, no sisters, no nothing. Just this little cat by itself, maybe like five, six days old. So, and it was like four degrees Celsius out. I knew if I left the cat there, he was just going to die. So I brought him up to my room, uh, cleaned him off. He was covered in fleas, covered in blood. That he was like, he was, the fleas were just eating him alive. It was disgusting. I cleaned him up and then uh, I went to the, the pet shop because the pet shops were open and the grocery stores were open and the pharmacies were open. That was it. Three things in Istanbul, city of 20 million people. Um, but I went to the pet shop and I got all this formula. And you had to mix the formula and heat it and then put it in a bottle. So I had to bottle feed this cat for like a month um, just to keep him kind of alive, which was great. And uh, yeah, so he's, he's awesome. His name is Whiskey. He's made an appearance several times on my Instagram posts and my Instagram lives. And, um, and yeah, he's happy and healthy. He's now, he's like what, like nine months old now? And he's with me in Dubai. And after Istanbul, we traveled through, we got some filming done in the summer. When I was in Istanbul, I was also working because I felt like Europe was going to open in the summer, and they did. So we filmed in Switzerland, Poland, Germany, Malta, Croatia, and Montenegro. So Whiskey came with me on the, all these trips, and he became like a film crew cat, and, um, which has been great. So now he's here with me in Dubai and very happy and very strong and uh, not quite as weak as he was the day I found him. Oh wow! So you made a lifelong friend then, didn't you? <laughs> from from a yeah. from a situation like that, so it's it's amazing. It obviously saved his life, so it's it's awesome. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the photography because there's something not bugging me because photography is something I did in art school, so I did a degree in art. Um, so the way photography has changed 
over the last, I would say, five to 10 years, I think that the biggest influence has been social media. So the way people take photos. When it comes to your actual photos that you take, uh, so when I was growing up, my school teacher would tell me, you know, because back in those days, you, you know, had like a, you'd, you know, you'd buy a film. So you only had like one, one chance to take a shot. So we were always taught when you take a shot, make sure you take it right the first time. You know, you've got, you've got, you've got, you've got 20 film, you know, 20 shots. So I always learned, you know, right, okay, do it right. The timing was really important. But now with digital cameras, so people can take, you know, a picture in the summer and then change it for winter, you know, have snow or whatever. Uh, how do you see photography going then? Because obviously you said your photography is your is your skill, is your passion. Yeah, I mean it, it definitely was, you know, when it was a viable when it was a viable um, career. But now, I mean, now you have Instagram photographers that make more money than National Geographic photographers and more money than Pulitzer Prize winning photographers, and and so, you know, and and a lot of photos that are on Instagram are manip- manipulated. Um, and you don't always know what you're seeing. So the reward balance between, you know, building a name for yourself and, and a reputation for yourself as a, as a professional photographer versus, you know, running around the world, taking Instagram photos of, you know, you and your girlfriend with your six pack, um, you know, those the six pack people w- make way more money and, uh, and seem to be having a much nicer life. Although you can't always see what you trust what you see on Instagram, but but it's 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 the you know photography is changing with the times. It's hard for me to judge if it's good or bad. But I think the integrity behind photography is gone, uh, maybe forever. So you know, I grew up you know I grew up with you know Cartier-Bresson and black and white. And the first few years I worked at the New York Times, I was shooting in film. And I grew up on National Geographic magazines with Steve McCurry and Michael Yomashta. And I, I loved, you know, um, Salgado's work and, you know, and all this, you know, this beautiful imagery, um, these books that changed my life. And this is, this has gone forever. Um, and what's replaced it is, you know, people taking pictures of their life in squares. And uh, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But, um, but yeah, it definitely made me not want to be a photographer anymore. That's a, that's quite a sad thing because uh, for me, again, photography is really sad because when I take you know pictures myself, again, you know, sunrise and sunsets, again, it's all about timing. And as you said, it's, it looks like an amazing life, people living, you know, six packs and whatever. But uh, I always say sometimes, though, it can go back the other way because people can potentially get sick of seeing those sort of you know, f- photographs, and eventually you'd want to see because it can't can turn. It's like fashion; it can go back round to actually. We want to see the real photos. I'm hoping, anyway. I don't know. I mean, there's seven billion people in this world. Um, you know, there's like two billion people on Instagram. There's two billion people <laughs> on Facebook. There's, you know, the the, the tide is going to be what those people um, want, and not what you know a former award-winning photographer and an art art school student want so you know we are probably in the vast minority of how we feel about this transition and uh and it'll be interesting to see where the future leads us but i i'm not too optimistic which is why i moved into television and and now there's i'm you know i'm dealing with this issue of you know should i keep doing long-form television should i keep making 46 minute or 50 minute episodes for bbc and discovery channel or should i take my show's to my YouTube channel or someone else's YouTube channel and make five minute episodes or, you know, like what's the future of how I'm going to continue to make a living traveling and exploring the world. 
And, uh, and the answer is not with BBC and Discovery Channel, probably. Or maybe it's like Netflix or I don't know. Like, but, you know, the long, the long form unscripted content, uh, is a, is a tough game at the moment. Like, you know, you've got your scripted stuff with your Hollywood stars. That's always going to be watched. It's always going to be green lit. There's always going to be good budgets for it. But if you're not doing some kind of like survivor, bear grills, eating bugs, competition based fake drama, um, nonfiction show, you're not getting any money. And, um, and then, you know, you gotta, you gotta put food on the table, right? Like, so it's, it's definitely a challenge of how to, how to compromise your vision of your storytelling with what you can, um, sell in the marketplace. And that is, uh, that is a daily struggle. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see because I said to you, one of my favorites is David Attenborough and he's just done a show for the BBC and it is amazing. Um, and I hope to see more of those types of shows, but it's only time will tell. With all the travels that you do, do you get time to go back home to, to Canada? Yeah, I go back home once in a while to, to see um, my mom. My mom's in Toronto, Canada. My brother's there. My dad's uh, just outside LA. So I, I get back in, in normal times, I was, you know, in North America four times a year. I would kind of go through North America to film or I would go through North America to go to South America. Um, I was in South America quite a lot filming over the last few years. So I'd always kind of stop through North America. I did a lot of speaking engagements in North America. They were some of my, um, my, my most active uh, speaking locations. So I was always there. Yeah. And it, it was great. That's why I live in Dubai. Like I could just, I could get on an airplane and fly to New York and then sleep, wake up the next day, do a talk and then fly back to Dubai. And I did that a lot. Um, and that was, it was great. Um, I really enjoyed that lifestyle. And, uh, um, but yeah, less and less and less probably in the future. What about in terms of with all that traveling and stuff, family wise yourself, have you ever thought about maybe settling down, maybe having kids yourself or is that not in the radar at all? Well, I'm divorced, so I've gone through that in my life already, and and uh, and again, it was just this, yeah, it was just difficult to manage this idea of of traveling so much and telling these stories, and also having this, um, you know, people who rely on you and people who need you to be in their life. So it was always very challenging to to strike that balance, and I don't think I did a great job of it. And I don't, it's hard to figure out where the line is and where where the balance is. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it was easier to, to just move on and, and uh, everything was very amicable and very nice. And, and, you know, I was able to fully focus on my career again, which is which, you know, was the priority, I suppose, you know, right or wrong. Relationship is something I struggle with because when you're constantly on the move, I guess unless someone is really committed to traveling with you or is supporting you in what you're doing, it can be very hard to to get them to understand this is what you do. And uh, yeah, I've talked to so many uh, travelers, bloggers, and it's it's unfortunately a, a thing. It looks like you know they're always single, but a lot of some travelers will always say you know this is what I want and you have to come into my life. And if you're not, if you don't agree with it, then it's not going to work. So, or maybe you just kind of, yeah, don't, you know, don't search for that, you know, like maybe you just have to, you know, give up on that part of life um, and just focus on your, your vision and your work and your storytelling and find, find comfort in that. Because I think, you know, um, bending to someone else's schedule or someone else's lifestyle is probably very hard especially for uh, a, you know, a successful storyteller because they're living the dream, quote unquote, and doing exactly what they want to do. But then pulling, the, pulling someone else into your life 
um, and maybe ruining their dreams or oh, this is getting to an interesting podcast, but, uh, you know, pulling someone into your life and having them follow you around where they're not maybe working or they're not really fulfilling their dreams is not really fair either. So, you know, when you look at it from both sides, um, you know, it, it's not going to last, I think. So, you know, I think the main important thing is you just try to spend time with people who respect you and spend time with people who are who are safe hands and people who understand your world and what you're trying to do with it. And, and, you know, when you're here, you're here. And when you're not, it's okay. And, um, those, those people are very few and far between. That's for sure. Well, Ryan, I'm going to have to leave it there. We've come to the end of our talk. I really appreciate you coming on and I'll speak to you very soon. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. You can follow my guests on all of their social media platforms. The details are in the description. That's it for Take a Wonder with Shebs. Don't forget to follow me on all of my social media platforms. Until next time, bye for now.